You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So you're living the rural farm life now, aren't you? Yeah, so I'm yeah, moved out of the, the big city of Fernie and living sort of in the rural, more rural Kootenays. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I noticed it in my internet connectivity for sure. Are you on uh, the satellite system there? No, we're on. Yeah, we're not on the Elon Musk program yet. Maybe one day, but um, right now we're on the like. Well, there's Explore now. Yeah. When we lived out there, there was. It's like a repeater on the mountain. It looks like a satellite dish, but it's bumping <laughs> off of some mountain. It's it's pretty it's oh, pretty janky, okay. but I mean, I don't know. We're st- we're still doing good science with pretty mediocre internet connectivity, so the show will go on. Yeah, all the old scientists are like, oh, man, <laughs> I remember the days. <laughs> internet. It gets me out of some Zoom meetings. Sometimes I'm like, ah, you know, it's just it's just not a good internet day. I better keep doing my real job instead of chatting with you guys. It, it also allows you to turn your camera totally. off during the meetings. Uh-huh. And if you've got like a, a Bluetooth headset, then you can like wander around and do stuff. <laughs> I picked up a... A fresh elk shed today in the middle of a meeting. I put in my Bluetooth headphones and put my phone in my pocket and went for a walk and I found a five point elk shed. <laughs> it's good use of time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So you're you're um you're living kind of in the zone where you're now gonna have all the problems with the grizzly bears that are moving through that sand creek corridor down to the Kukanusa to get the kokanee in the summer. So are you going to like be one of those rural farmers now? I I am. Come and get your bear off my land. (laughs) I'm going to shoot it if you don't get out here. That's, I mean, that's, I've been working on that accent slowly. I'm not going to, I won't trial it here tonight, but I mean, I, it's actually, it's, it's good to do these kind of things. I find because I, over the winter, I built a chicken coop, one of those, um, chicken tractors where you know the it'll roll oh, yeah. and the chickens will live under and it was you know kind of one of those february things where it's like i'm bored and i you know spend too much time thinking with my brain and creating like word documents and don't get to like create anything tangible with my hands and i was like i'm gonna build this chicken tractor so i did but you know obviously like chickens are just bear food i mean if you don't electric fence those things around here like you're looking for bear problems and so I think it's good. I mean, obviously I built this thing and I was like, oh, it's a work of art. And then I was like, oh, like I don't want to put electric on it. It's it's a it's so beautiful and it's going to be so annoying. But it's like, you know, that's my job is to, you know, uh, educate folks. And it is good because I had to educate myself. Be like, you know, this is probably going to get eaten by a bear. You know, it'll get tipped over and it'll ruin my month of craftsmanship and eat my chickens and I'll be upset. So Anyways, you gotta if you're gonna talk the talk, you gotta walk the walk. And so now the fence is electrified and it's good. I think we'll be living the coexistence life here or whatever that looks like, you know, the as best we can. So is the trick chicken tractor itself electric? No, is there's it a portable electric fence? Right. Yeah, like so there is the option of electrify the the coop itself and the electric moves with it, or you know, we actually just got some of that uh, electric mesh and it's kind of like 160 mm. feet that just goes around it. And so the, the coop can just sort of, you know, get pushed around within that, you know, enclosure. And then if we want to move it to another part of the pasture or whatever we can, it, 
it sets up in no time, so it was pretty easy and economical. Hmm. And the compost can go in there too, and all the other things. You know, I'm I, I'm working on being a, a model uh, coexistence steward. So you come to my house, I'll give you a coexistence tour. <laughs> Hopefully, don't see a bear now. <laughs> Now your nemesis is probably going to become like a weasel. <laughs> right. Or a hawk. Just going to... Or all the other things. Like, everything wants to kill these chickens. So, I mean, I'll, I'll let you know. And it's, it's pretty hobby farm status. Like, we're talking about two chickens. Like, and they have, you know, old lady names. Like, one is named Edna. So, I mean, if Edna is still alive in, like, six months, I mean, I will have been successful. <laughs> There's um there's foxes out that part of the country too. Yes, I used to see them around around Thai Lake. Red foxes. I think we had one in our yard one time. It was kind of mm-hmm. kind of cool. So um, they might come by and visit. I've heard weasels are pretty because they can fit actually like right through the little tiny hole on like chicken wire. Yes. Not that everything else can't just like rip that stuff off, but um, they just they just dart through the little hole and then they figure out they can't actually get the chicken back out. So just a dead chicken. I mean, they, they'll have a hard time getting through the electric, but they could like torpedo through it if they, you know, do a running start and try not to hit the wire. And then the coop is hardware meshed. So it's, you know, quarter inch squares. So unless they can turn into like a, you know, an octopus and, and squeeze through that, I think we'll keep the, them out as well. But I, you know, Keeping them alive with my greatest. No, endeavor. it'll be, it'll be, uh, it'll be an interesting experience for you. Like, like you said, kind of living, living what the, uh, what mm-hmm. the other folks are always saying about having to, you know, rural people have to live with the bears. So exactly. Ho- hopefully you don't. I heard, I don't know, maybe working in the Upper Elk Valley, you've heard this story, but when. Y- Decades ago, when the community of Elkford was kind of first established and they put their landfill site up the Elk Valley Forest Service Road, uh, of course, it became a grizzly bear magnet up there. And uh, they ended up doing a big, tall electric fence around it. And I had been told that they wanted in there so bad because it was just the, uh, the smooth wire strands. Yeah. Uh, wasn't like a like a grid so if they wanted to they could still kind of like wiggle their way through it is they just went like full tilt and they just they just went at it head between some wires scramble 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 and then got through to the inside and it was it was the way somebody explained it to me is the 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 hits that they got you know from the electric pulses um, they just kind of like you know grit their teeth so to speak but they wanted on the inside so bad once they realized it was electrified they were willing to like so i don't know if you ever heard that story if it was true or not no i mean i've heard lots of you know stories about that uh that dump up there and people you know their dad's taking them in the back of a pickup to go and look at the bears feeding on the dump and stuff and i mean i think today's electric fences are actually incredibly effective and you know as an example um, we have those carcass pits, electric fence, so where the um, contractors from Ministry Transport are dumping all of the roadkill off of hundreds of kilometers of highway. So talking about like an elk a day sort of thing. So hundreds of thousands of calories and bears want in there really bad. And I have cameras up on all around it and it's impenetrable. 
I mean, the the Bears and Electric is on. No bear has ever made it through there. They get zapped on oh, their nose and like they want mm. in. I mean, this is, you know, that's the creme de creme to get a bunch of elk laying right in front of them and they can see the elk inside there. But no, they can't they can't get through it. It, it gets them on the nose. You have to have the wires spaced appropriately. It sounds like that Elkford, uh, it could have been really wide and they can squeeze through and it does nothing to their fur. They're well insulated, so it's not that good. But if the wires are close enough and you get them a zap on the nose, they are gone. They turn around and they don't come back. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And this would have been a long, long time ago, obviously, and might have been one of the first electric offenses where the source was a car battery sitting on totally you know by one of the corner posts or something so um probably part of how we learn yeah how they, to do, they do the new ones electric. do give a yeah yeah i i grabbed one one time to see what it was like so <laughs> not with my nose but yeah right on well i'm glad you're living the rural life we hope you uh can successfully uh husband your uh chickens through until um <laughs> I guess till you get to butcher them in the fall before winter. So it's kind of a kind of a moot point for the chickens. <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get eight one way or the other. One of them's one of them's got a key, a switch, and the other other source doesn't. So that's right. Uh, yeah, and you said you got some horses, so hopefully you don't have any issues with those. I don't know. Was, I the whole time I've lived here in the Kootenays wildlife conflict with horses the only incidents i recall are with cougars yeah i mean and no, nothing else seems to really hassle i heard one story in fort Steele where the grizzly bear was chasing the horses around uh when they were phoning the seals but um as far as actually killing it i only heard it was it was a cougar that had killed some horses yeah i, I I don't envision many issues with the grizz. I mean, we got quite a few horses throughout the Elk Valley and a lot of grizzly bears. And I mean, we just never hear of horse problems. We have some trail cam footage of an area where um, a grizzly bear is getting to somebody's chicken coop. Chickens are obviously and constantly the source of conflict. And the the footage is a, of a horse. He's in the trail cam and behind the horse, you can see the grizzly bear's eyes looking at this horse. But I think they just happen to be coexisting in the same pasture. The bear is probably waiting to break into the chickens again that night or whatever. But yeah, you know, you got to think of a horse as a, a, you know, at the smallest end, like a thousand pound animal up to, you know, those big draft horses or 1400 pounds. And I mean, yeah. the grizzly bears we have in the Kootenays, the biggest one we've ever captured was just under 600 pounds. So at best, he's going to be half the size and the average female is about 300 pounds. So that's, you know, that's just a big size difference. So that horse is, you know, a pretty formidable animal and horses are prey and they evolve to learn how to stand up and kick and, and look after themselves. So a bear could actually get very hurt by a horse if they decided to go toe to toe. Yeah, like we've yeah, got, uh, sense. we got 20, 23 or 26 here where I am. And I mean, I'm looking right on the Mount Hosburn. Yeah. And uh, it's like it's a grizzly bear corridor going up and down Hartley Creek there, and we've never had an issue with with the horses and the bears. And we had, I think, for the first time, they said in seven or eight years, I actually had one on the property this fall. It was a big boar was getting into our 
garbage dumpster. But yeah. other than that, like they say that bears don't even step foot on the property here. Like they just kind of, at least the upper part where all the paddocks and, and the houses and stuff are. But Yeah, keep it pretty clean. And then the horses probably keep the bears away. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And no chickens. Right. So the take home is oh. everybody needs a horse, which I can tell you my partner would love to hear because she loves horses and that's why we have horses. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe put the horse in with the chickens. Uh-huh. For guard, the summer. guard horse. Huh? A horse tractor. Huh? There you go. You got a whole I get I could see several papers yeah. on that coming out. Yeah. It's gonna be good. Hey everybody, it's Mark Hall. And it's host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. So maybe you don't have a horse and you have a really, really big chicken tractor. And the only way you can move your chicken tractor around is with a sweet Toyota 4x4. And if you need that, the folks at Alpine Toyota can hook you up and get your chicken tractor moving. Or maybe you got to hook your electric fence up to a car battery. You can just park your Toyota beside your chicken coop and plug the electric fence onto the car battery. There you go. That's a good one. Yeah, they're uh, big supporters of us, big supporters of Conservation Ducks Unlimited Canada, and we appreciate what they do and appreciate their support. So thanks, as always, to the folks down at Alpine Toyota. Totally. Thanks, Alpine. Got a whole new uh, line of Toyota pickup trucks coming out. We'll call it the Grizzly. And if all of those fail, then you can hide inside the truck. (laughs) Uh, Clayton, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure being on and chatting with you guys as always. It's, yeah, I always look forward to these discussions and I, you know, I really enjoy listening to the podcast as a whole. Oh, cool. Appreciate it. So everybody, uh, Dr. Clayton Lamb, uh, a resident of... No longer Fernie, British Columbia, but a resident of, so would you call that Galloway, British Columbia now? Yeah, I mean, it's Jaffrey, Jaffrey, Galloway. South country. Yeah, we don't even really have a post office. It's pretty rural. It's not even clear where my mail goes. So, yeah, let's go with Jaffrey. There is a name for that area, and it's the crossing where the railroad tracks is. It's just, it slips my mind right now, but it'll probably come in the middle of the podcast. Caseness? Um no no it's got mm-hmm. I'll, I'll 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 think of it well we don't want, we don't want to give people away because then they're going to be like all the clayton's fans are going to be driving by his house looking at his, <laughs> his chicken tractor yeah <laughs> big tour like um those uh great those big buses from england they'll be like going by his house oh there's the 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 coexistence grizzly bear chicken tractor so uh, this is really cool for us because you were our first guest on our very first episode, mm-hmm. uh, episode one. Um, geez, that's like three years ago. We recorded it uh, ahead of time, and uh, we'll get it. We'll get into it a little bit. But uh, we had uh, gone turkey hunting together, um, and before we did did that episode, and then we did the episode on grizzly bear conservation and your. Uh, at that time, it was uh, your PhD work on the Elk Valley in southeastern British Columbia and kind of the phenomenon of 
the ecological trap, grizzly bears moving out of the backcountry into the Elk Valley um, more readily than they were moving from the valley back out. So you know, it was an ecological sink. Bears were piling up down there, and it was not a good story for, for, for bears. That's uh, episode one. I had a look before the show. You are um, the number uh, one downloaded episode. So that episode has been heard 18, over 1800 times. Wow. That's awesome. And that's just, that's just downloads. That's just not streams either. Right. Yes. That's yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that's downloads. So people could listen to it off of our website or, or whatever. And that doesn't actually, uh, log. So, um, that's the cool thing about podcasts like yours, you know, a couple years ago, episode one, if somebody just stumbles across our podcast and they're like, oh my God, this is pretty cool. We like this. And they want to go back to the beginning and, you know, and binge listen and, and catch up and stuff. It's like it, that conversation is still relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like a news story where you're like, oh, well, it's like there's a new variation of the news story. Like it's still relevant to somebody that hasn't listened to it. So those episodes are always being continually downloaded and listened to by by people that have, are, are just finding our show. So um, appreciate the... Uh, and they're awesome. The ongoing. Like some of those early ones. I mean, I mean, obviously, that and the new ones too. But like, I especially think of um, sort of like you know we're always more fond of historic times, especially in these weird times we're in now, probably. But like, um, you know, I think of uh, the bison episode um, talking about uh, the the buffalo jump there. And then, um, you know, mm-hmm. you had, there was like... In, Jack Brink. Yeah. yeah, and there was Invasive Pigs with um, uh, Ryan Brooke and in those early conversations with, uh, with Lee Foote. And I mean, there's just some really good stuff back there that, you know, people should definitely go back and listen to. It's the new stuff, you know, that we get streaming that we listen to on the fly. But yeah, I mean, don't forget about the old stuff too. There's some really good, good stuff there. And like you say, it's, it's relevant because some of it, like especially, well, and all of it is, you know, sometimes somebody's whole life work that they're summarizing. It's not like a, this is what happened this week per se. Like it's it's as relevant then uh, as it is now. I mean, so it's it's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great that's a great way of of um, looking at it. And and as you know, we've done quite a few episodes with. You just mentioned Dr. Lee Foote. He's retired from the University of Alberta. And uh, Matt Desco, uh, Director of Wildlife and Licensing from the province of Alberta. Um, besides the fact that those two guys are uh, hilarious and you should just see the emails that go back and forth when we're trying to set things up with those guys. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty, pretty polished uh, uh, humor there and yeah. stuff. But, you know, Lee put this to me one time. He said he's retired. And he's got a life's worth of work in conservation and an ongoing obligation in retirement to continue passing on that knowledge uh, and experience about his work and even how that experience and knowledge um, lends a perspective on current events. Yeah. Uh, which which we usually do, and so he's excited to come on the show because he sees that as a responsibility as as a scientist to continue. Um, he also he also sort of said it's like it's our responsibility to find folks 
like him and Matt, you know, in the latter parts of their career and like, and, and drain them of information. <laughs> right. So, um, they're, they're always happy to come on the show and they're fun. And, and when you're old and retired chicken farmer, <laughs> we'll be bringing you back and <laughs> I'd love to. Uh, and then we did we did another episode with you on road ecology, um, so kind of the whole issue around um, wildlife bouncing off of car bumpers, uh, big and small, and uh, like hey, we talked about songbirds and the impacts of those to the sounds of highways. You've still been involved in that with some uh, wildlife crossing work uh, here in southern British Columbia. Uh, some of the some of the first ones, the issues up by the community of Radium at the bottom of Kootenai National Park there where they're, uh, they got a big counter on the side of the highway that clicks down the number of sheep that are hit on a hourly basis up there. You've been, you're doing some work there and publishing some stuff and trying to get advocacy and awareness out there to move folks towards getting some crossing structures built up there because we're running out of sheep. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think the, I think the crossing structure file will become, you know, bigger through time, especially in BC. Um, you know, obviously Alberta has a lot and uh, Alberta just broke ground on another one today, literally. And it's the first one uh, in Alberta outside a national park and it's another mega overpass. So, you know, I think we're kind of due in BC to start following suit, uh, in that fashion and I think we will so I think we'll see the sort of landscape of road ecology change in a in a good way here in BC I mean our project in on highway 3 is going to break ground this summer too the fence is going up in a in a couple of months and so I mean things are going to happen here and, and it'll be good I mean obviously the wildlife are in a pretty tough shape here in the East Kootenays and so we're trying to trying to move the needle and make it work a little better so I'm I, I'm encouraged no, that's that's good to hear. It's good it, in these times. It's good to hear some some positive things happening, and and folks like yourself that have have hope. It's easy to get mired, kind of in the, you know, here's another issue, and here's another issue. But it's like there there is some good stuff happening. I just watched the um, Wild Community film uh, yesterday on the um, Southern Interior Mule Deer Research Project with. Uh, Dr. Adam Ford and Sophie Gilbert and Jesse Zeman from the Federation was on and, and stuff. And it was like just such a positive, you know, they're they're trying to understand why mule deer populations have declined in the Okanagan, but just such a positive outlook on, on what they have been accomplishing. And uh, I guess it's just really cool to see, let's just say it at my age, the younger generation kind of like grabbing the bull by the horns. It's It's exciting. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, it's it's that's a pretty major collaboration that, you know, was actually started by by Jesse and the BCWF that really noticed that as an issue and then brought, you know, academics on board like, you know, Dr. Sophie Gilbert and, and Adam Ford. And uh, then, you know, those folks obviously took it to the next level and, you know, created quite a uh, an ambitious and collaborative, you know, research project to try to understand what's going on with these mule deer. And now there's a number of students. I mean, it's primarily led by uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Chloe Wright. And, you know, I think we're going to learn a lot about mule deer from that work, but that, that started from hunters really, and, and from people being concerned about mule deer. And, and I think 
as a result, we'll probably uh, be able to help those mule deer, you know, once we figure out what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Now you have, since we spoke last, kind of moved into a role where you're now in northeastern British Columbia, trying to move the needle with your research work on endangered mountain caribou recovery up in the northeast area. Um, are you are you particularly working with just the one herd and the one recovery effort, or are you kind of across several of the caribou recovery zones up there? Well, you know, I'd, I'd say my my postdoc work is, yeah, mostly focused on the herd called Klinziza, which is uh, just kind of on the north side of the Pine Pass as you're heading between Prince George and um, Chetwin. But, you know, we we kind of focus more broadly on what we call the, the central group of southern mountain caribou, which are basically, you know, the Klinziza is the, the northern part of that, and it goes basically all the way through to Jasper. Um, so the central group of, of, those, of southern mountain caribou um, are shared by BC and Alberta and, yeah, go all the way through to the park herds. And, yeah, I mean, it it's really encouraging encouraging work that we'll obviously get into deeper here. But I, I think just to uh, sort of center the, the listeners on, on my role here, I mean, as opposed to a lot of the other works where I'm sort of, you know, where we've started projects and, and I, I lead them, this one's a little different in that I was sort of brought on to a project that was already had a lot of momentum and it was it was started by um, two First Nations, West Moberly and, and Soto First Nations and then and then largely driven as well by um, uh, independent scientists. So uh, a company called Wildlife Infometrics that's owned by uh, Scott McNay and and his wife Lynn and you know that collaborative team took a caribou herd that was heading towards zero and has now tripled them as of this month. And so, you know, I, I was brought on kind of halfway through that um, trajectory to lead a lot of the science. It was one of those conservation examples, which is a little different than how we do things in academia. You know, you know we like to study things and find out what's going on and then recommend um, solutions and then hope that government takes them up. And that that model actually doesn't work that well. I think, you know, a lot of people would know that we know kind of what's going on in a lot of cases and it's sort of a lack of um, implementing solutions. And in this case, it was quite different. Uh, these caribou needed help and they needed help immediately. And, you know, we kind of knew what they needed. And so the action just started, you know, we didn't need to study them and find out, you know, more about why they were declining. We, you know, we sort of had a good sense. and. The, through the collaboration with, you know, West Moverly and Soto and then with Wildlife Infometrics, they just got after it, started to try to recover these caribou. Um, and then, of course, on the backside of the success, it was like, okay, we should probably measure what happened here and, you know, decompose the vital rates and all the things that I do as a scientist. So I was brought on to do that. And so, you know, I, I'm sort of filling a different role here in that I was brought on as a a scientist on a you know an ongoing project, and also to try to weave Western science and and indigenous knowledge, all of which were you know new for me. But uh, you know I I've really um, benefited from the from the experience and and really valued the the opportunity to do that. Huh, very exciting, very exciting. So, 
Walk our listeners through a little bit of the backstory. So we talk about a recovery effort that's being led by uh, West Moberly and Soto First Nations. So, so maybe kind of start us there. How, how did that come about? Uh, and then what, what exactly um, sort of are the nations doing or what were they doing before you got, got there? Let, like, let's bring, let's get up to that, that point. Yes. I mean, at the highest level, um, Southern Mountain Caribou are, um, you know, a, a mountain caribou group that live basically in Southern uh, Canada and Southern British Columbia and Alberta, and they are endangered. So they are uh, unfortunately rapidly declining. Um, They've been rapidly declining over the last 20 or 30 years to the point that about, you know, 10 or 11 of the subpopulations, you know, there's only about 40 of them have been completely lost within my lifetime alone. So, you know, we're talking about a very severe conservation challenge that is not just, you know, small declines. We're losing entire groups of caribou. And one of the groups of caribou um, that was lost was called the burnt pine herd and they're actually sort of neighbors with the Klinziza. And what happened with the burnt pine is there were a small group of caribou and like most caribou, the challenge is that, uh, you know, a lot of disturbance on the landscape, um, you know, through logging and oil and gas exploration was basically creating a landscape that was, you know, better for uh, moose and deer and elk. And it was bringing in the, you know, the predators that eat those, those prey. And that, that kind of creates a problem for these caribou because they didn't evolve in those kind of situations. They evolved in old growth, fairly low productivity environments that didn't have abundant predators. And so in the case of the burnt pine, it was you know a, a similar example where it had been pretty heavily logged and there was actually even mining going on. And um, Wes Moberly took, uh, it was either the province or the mining company, I can't remember, to court over this illegal what they perceived as an illegal um, mining operation that was threatening these caribou. And, you know, these caribou were spiraling downhill. And while this was in court and while Wes Moberly was fighting for um, the protection of these caribou on, and this landscape, you know, shortly after that, that court work, those caribou were lost completely. You know, so it was, you know, despite the best efforts, it was a l- sort of a little uh, too little, too late kind of situation. And, and those caribou went to zero. And that was in 2012. And so come 2013, when a flight for uh, the Klinziza herd was done, and they basically only flew half of it, and they only counted 16 caribou. And that, you know, obviously is just a small number of caribou to begin with. But for context, um, in 1995, so, you know, say uh, 20 years earlier, there was about 250 caribou in the entire herd. And previous to that, West Moberly elders described the, the herd as, you know, being as abundant as bugs on the landscape or, or um, being like a sea of caribou. So we kind of had this gradual um, shrinking of this herd from, you know, what seemed like many, many hundreds of caribou down to 250 or 395 and then down to very few. We kind of estimate that there was only about 38 left in the entire herd in, in 2013. And so... You know, I think there was the context is important is because, you know, West Moberly had just been fighting for caribou and, and fighting, you know, unsustainable resource extraction for these caribou. And, and it wasn't, you know, that was obviously not working for those caribou. And 
they were not going to accept the loss of another group of caribou in their in their homelands and in their backyard. And that was really when the Klinziza project came to life was, you know, on the backside of that court decision and the loss of the burnt pine. And then on that low count of Klinziza, it, you know, it was it was go time. Wow. Quite the story. Um, I can mention this to someone the other day. It's like when you have these conversations, particularly here in British Columbia, uh, whether it's, you know, conflict about moose hunting seasons, uh, you know, or, or the old deer, like we were talking before, or whatever, it's like you trace that story back. And it's like we all land in the same place here in British Columbia and it's habitat loss due to incredibly um, high levels or high impacts of industrial development, natural resource development on the landscape. And uh, it's just, it's, it's the common thread that weaves through just about all of these stories here in, in the province and, and in Alberta as well. And uh, yeah, it's just a, uh, it's unfortunate that it's a story that keeps repeating itself, but you know, here we are, um, habitat can kind of like slowly recover on its own, can kind of wait for us to get our shit together. As you know, wildlife can't, especially caribou that are getting eaten, you know, at a fair, fairly high rate. So the nations decided they needed to kind of like take control of the recovery and conservation effort on their own. Is that, is that how I read that? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what happened. Uh, you know, I think there's, I mean, there's probably a lot of directions we could, we could go here. I mean, one thing that I, uh, I learned a lot about through this work was, uh, you know, Indigenous rights, um, especially in a, in a legal sense. And, and especially for West Moberly and Soto, who are, you know, part of Treaty 8. And that treaty is not as familiar with for a lot of people in, in British Columbia because, a lot of lands in, in BC are, are unceded lands. They're not um, uh, they're not part of a, a formal treaty, the numbered treaties or even modern treaties. But on the on the east side of the Rockies, in in the peace, um, you know that's Treaty Eight territory, and that that comes with uh, you know a different um, uh, legal situation. It's not necessarily better or worse per se. I mean, there's a lot of First Nations that are choosing not to enter into treaty you know these days because that that would not serve them but in this case the when treaty was signed it was um you know it was in the turn of the century right uh, like 1899 sort of thing was treaty 8 i think it was 1899 yeah. yep that's that's the number on the document that is like the commissioner's report i don't know when the actual signatures happened but the commissioner's report was 1899 and it the the treaty talks about sort of a, a subsistence livelihood and then, you know, part of the treaty is also, and, and legally it, it's upheld that it's important what was said during the signing of the treaties and also um, how it was interpreted. Because you can imagine that, you know, a lot of these, these First Nations people obviously did not speak English. They had very, um, you know, well-developed languages of their own, which, you know, of course, we as settlers didn't learn and communicate to them in their language. We communicated to them in our you know, English language expected them to, you know, um, follow suit. And so when signing those agreements, what's important is, um, one, what was said and, and how it would have been understood at that time of signing by the First Nations. So, 
and I guess maybe I'd caveat that like I I am a wildlife scientist, so all of this is my understanding of it. I am not a I, I'm not a legal scholar, <laughs> but I'll try to share with you the best that I understand it, which will probably help people you know better understand this themselves. But you know I certainly encourage people to read up on it themselves and do a bit of digging um, or correct me if I'm wrong. Please send me an email. But you know the the part of the commissioner's report was that they talked a lot about, and these are, you know, commissioners to Canada. So these are, you know, white settlers that are hired by Canada to go and, you know, do the treaty process. They wrote about how there was a lot of concern from First Nations about, you know, their right to hunt and fish and if generally their way of life would be inhibited by signing treaty. So, you know, these are undeveloped lands. These are people riding up on horseback to First Nations groups and saying like, you know, we want to enter into treaty and First Nations are saying like, okay, but can we still do what we do? Or is this place going to become different sort of thing? And in the commissioner's report, it says that we we have promised them and, and we will be able to carry through that they will be able to continue on with their way of life as if they had never entered into treaty. And I mean, that's written right into the commissioner's report. And you can, I mean, it, it's no wow. stretch of the imagination that that is no longer true. I mean, you know, the the buffalo are gone, the caribou are gone, and, you know, there we have created a reserve system. I mean, there has been incredible change, and we are, we as, you know, Canadians are clearly in violation of that treaty, which we are all signatories of. So, you know, I learned a lot about that and, and how that plays into wildlife, of course. You know, that is a that is an environmental and wildlife-specific clause that has, you know, it's important to the First Nations, but I think it's important to us as Canadians and as hunters who also want to see more animals on the landscape and people, you know, interacting with wildlife and hunting and learning about where your food comes from. And I think there's pieces of that that, you know, are important to, to us as, as settler hunters as well. So I, you know, I learned a lot about that. And I, I think it really richened my uh, experience and understanding as well. Hmm. Well, that is, that is, um, that is quite the context to a research project that you, that you don't normally, that you don't normally hear. Um, I think uh, you did a great job summarizing it better than kind of the, the legal way of approaching it, right? So um, I think people, I think between this story, hopefully, and the previous podcast uh, with Jesse, you know, when we talked about the Yehi decision, um, it's all part and parcel of the same part of the world, the same treaty, the same nations involved uh, in that. I, I, I would assume people are learning uh, very quickly here in British Columbia over the last month a lot about um the treaties, the legal process, um, rights, and 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 interests of Indigenous people in protecting their way of life, and you know the bottom line is is you know when it comes to hunting and fishing, which is you know the subsistence lifestyle you talked about that they were that they were promised. Um, it's not just a matter of like you know hey we're not stopping you you can go out and do those things, but one of the findings of the Yehi decision was the judge was like, well, there has to be something there in order for that right to be upheld. You can't say, well, we're not stopping you from going hunting, but if they can't hunt and access 
moose and caribou like they used to, then it's like, yes, you have. Um, so, so those it's, it's, yeah, this stuff's all tying together and it's been a great educational experience. Mm -hmm. I think for all of us here the last, the last month. Yeah. So maybe pick up on what the nations have been doing with their recovery projects. Like, so on the ground stuff, like let's talk about the maternal pens and, and kind of what they've been doing. And then we'll, we'll segue into how that's turning out. So at the highest level, the, the recovery program focused on two classes of recovery levers. One was short term, and we'll get into those now. And then one was long term, and we'll discuss that later. And that's about the habitat, which is really important to keep in mind while we talk about these short term measures, because they're the band-aid or the stopgap that gets us to the point where the habitat is sort of, you know, at a point that it'll sustain these caribou on its own. So focusing in on the short term, you know, what we what was used to um, uh, sustain these caribou in the interim and, and avert extirpation. So kind of if we zoom back to 2013, you can imagine a, a group of people, which was, you know, the so West Moberly and Soto First Nations, and then a, a consulting agency, Wildlife Infometrics, which Scott McNay is, you know, he has a, a PhD, he did his uh, PhD on black-tailed deer on the island and, you know, knows a lot about caribou. And basically there's a group of people sitting around thinking, you know, we just lost a group of caribou and we're about to lose this one. And the basically the decline and loss of caribou was all that we know at that point in 2013. We That's all the story has been for caribou. And what can we do to sort of turn the tide for these caribou? And the two things that were agreed upon, one was to reduce the density of wolves, um, you know, mostly to a point that more naturally, more naturally reflected what caribou would have evolved with. I mean, so the density of wolves was somewhere in the order of sort of eight to 15 wolves per thousand square kilometers. And really what caribou do okay with, you know, what they can sustain themselves with, there is density of kind of one to three wolves per thousand. So, you know, the, the wolf density had to be reduced to a point that was sort of more, uh, natural with you know historic levels and then the next one was maternal penning and maternal penning is something that's probably not too familiar to a lot of folks and really wasn't that well known at this point in 2013 so the maternal penning was a was a risk but it was an educated guess and what maternal penning does is basically the goal is to protect the calves when they're very vulnerable and Basically, caribou cows can be killed within days of being born, and we actually see that right now. Even today, when we're monitoring caribou that are not in a maternal pen, wolverine or um, grizzly bears or black bears or basically anything with teeth can run up to a caribou calf that's pretty um, vulnerable within those first few weeks of life, and they, they kill them and eat them, which is fine. I mean, that's that's what predators do. We, predators eat prey, and that's okay, but it becomes a challenge when there's so few caribou left and when there's a lot of predators on the landscape. So what the maternal pen does is try to avoid that early um, predation. And it it basically, uh, it looks like something that isn't 
as fancy as maybe you'd think for a you know a high-end conservation action. It is landscaping cloth that is stretched between trees, and that in essence is all that it is. Um, it it's at elevation, so it's you know up in hanging basins, up in caribou habitat where they'd naturally be at that time of year, and then it's protected on the outside with a lot of electric fencing, and then. Um, the caribou are guarded full time by indigenous guardians that live up at elevation with these caribou. So they feed them and they, you know, protect them from predators and monitor the electric fence and do all the things. And basically the timeline is that these caribou are brought in in March. So we actually just caught 19 caribou for the maternal pen in Klinziza the other day. And then they are basically uh, you know, they're fed and looked after in there until they have their calves in um, May and June. And then basically they're let go with their calves as soon as their calves are about six to eight weeks old. And, you know, you kind of open up that fence and we always kind of joke because journalists always want to come up and take photos of this, of the release. And I think people expect sort of a you know, like a, a, a river of caribou just streaming out of this, this fence <laughs> into freedom after they've been stuck in captivity. And I mean, it couldn't be further from the truth. Caribou take so well to captivity. I mean, there's the, the Sami uh, reindeer herders, which are, you know, essentially the same species as caribou. It's Rangifer tarandus that are in, um, uh, you know, the other side of the world, of course, but same kind of animals. And they take, caribou take really well to to captivity and basically we open up the door and they don't leave we you know it can take many hours or even days and often we have to kind of bait them out and they're they're probably thinking like oh man not back into that wolf and wolverine and clear-cut type world i mean <laughs> it's a pretty good life in the pen they're they're looked after pretty well but of course they go out and that's that's where they're supposed to be and um you know they do quite well out there the the adult females survive as well or better than the caribou that are, you know, outside. And then the calves survive twice as well as, um, so the calves born in the pen survive twice as well as the calves born outside. So hmm. those are the two main recovery actions that are being taken in the short term. Oh. Wow. Um, how, how big is the pen facility? It's, so it's, changes through time because there's been two different pens in the Klinziza over the last from 2014 to 2020 but generally they're they're about 8 to 15 hectares so say like you know 25 to 40 acres okay okay interesting um and it's just it's just fenced in natural habitat is it mostly open or is it fairly forested that that they're being kept in it's both i mean so the ideal pen site uh basically has a little stream going through it so there's water so we don't have to provide water uh it has a bunch of old growth so that they can find shelter and you know um, safety from uh, sun and things like that and then it also has meadows that are windy that they can get out of the way of bugs and so the ideal you know, 30 acres for caribou has all of the things they would need over their many hundreds of acres, but compressed into a tiny area. And so when we're selecting an area for a pen site, I mean, we're looking over vast areas and we're looking for that very specific recipe of, you know, those three main things and the elevation, of course, because that keeps them cool and allows that when we 
uh, release them. They're right in caribou habitat, don't have to run a gauntlet from low elevation. But, you know, it's it's really an optimization problem of finding all those things. And it was actually just last week I did uh, a big analysis trying to find pen sites in another area. And it's, you know, you're kind of overlaying different things. And some places have most of the things, but not all of them. And we, it's a pretty high bar for us. They have to have all of them because it's as soon as those caribou go into that pen, they're, you know, they're they're our responsibility, and we obviously want to, you know, provide the best conditions for them and and allow them to, you know, feel as natural as as they can in there. Wow. And they're they're being, you said, fed. So obviously, within that pen, the number of animals that are there, there's it's not producing enough um, natural forage. So that's being augmented with, I guess, just collecting natural food on the landscape and bring, bringing it in. Is that, is that what they're doing? Well, so both, I mean, I guess first the caribou do eat in the pen quite a bit. That's part of the reason why we move the pens because they, they graze the area down pretty hard. <laughs> okay. Both through, they completely remove every strand of lichen that's available in the trees and any, um, uh, you know, terrestrial lichen on the ground. And then, you know, we often talk about caribou as being lichen, you know, obligate, but they also eat all kinds of different things, like they browse on willow and new forbs and things like that. So they're getting a bit of food in there that supplements their diet. But, you know, as you say, we have to provide probably the majority of their food during much of the year. And so the way that that supplemented food works is it's, they start on lichen when they're brought in to the pen. So that lichen is, is collected by uh, Soto First Nations um, on the ground. Folks go out and pick dozens of garbage bags of lichen, which is, you know, a big task and kind of speaks to this, you know, the community-led, um, uh, you know, the way that this, this work is done, you know, through communities. They're, you know, they're on the ground gathering food for these caribou and then they're they're up there, you know, um, you know, feeding it to these caribou, and so they're they're started on lichen, and because that's obviously you know a big part of their diet at that time of the year naturally, and then they're slowly transitioned onto actually a, a caribou specific pellet, which was designed for zoo caribou, and then they basically exist on that all the way through their um, you know their time in the pen, and then they're transitioned back onto lichen. So that when they go out into the pen, you know, it's not an abrupt change back onto their natural diet. Hmm. Huh. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. Because, yeah, just even half a dozen or ten animals like collecting natural forage to get their, their, their daily intake would be probably almost a, a task that would be um, impossible to accomplish. We're... <clears throat> the pre-made pellets are, you know, highly nutritious, got everything they need for, for the, for the weight to volume. Uh, wow. That's, um, yeah, that's quite, that's quite the, the operation. Uh, it'd be, uh, be pretty cool to see some pictures. Like I kind of develop stuff in my brain, <clears throat> what this looks like, but it'd be, be kind of, kind of cool to actually, actually see it. Now, <clears throat> the other short-term action that you said that's being coupled with that is the effort <clears throat> on the landscape to manage the wolf density. And now is that is that an effort that's being led by the nations or is that the, the wolf control program that the province is undertaking? 
it, it's really a collaborative effort. It started by the First Nations. Uh, so, you know, BC's aerial program uh, started around 2015 and West Moberly and Soto started the wolf reduction in 2013, right? As soon as they started the recovery program, it was actually the first thing that they did was start reducing the density of wolves in 2013. And then it wasn't until 2014 that the, the maternal pen came online. And then post-2014, it was every year maternal penning and wolf reductions. And so, you know, the West Moberly and, and Soto support the, uh, the reduction of the predators through trapping and, and hunting. And then the province of BC reduces the density through uh, an aerial program where wolves are shot from a helicopter. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's, I think that's such an important part, you know, of this story to communicate to people because it, it isn't communicated all that well, sort of in, in the mainstream media out there. Um, but here are, um, two nations. There's probably more, uh, in that part of the world. We know the episode we did with, uh, President Chad Norman Day of the Taltan Central Government. He talked about predator management and the traditions and practices of Taltan people with wolves and bears, um, something they support, something they've been advocating for more of. Here in the context of caribou recovery, uh, the nations are actively involved. They recognize uh, the problem that we've created on the landscape, like as you explained, by increasing changing the habitat, increasing moose and other ungulates, bringing in more wolves than that were there historically, so they have a disproportionate impact on a declining caribou herd. They're, they're supporting that effort. And what we normally hear, what most people hear in the media is these kind of broad brush statements that Indigenous peoples are against these wolf control measures for caribou recovery. Uh, I think I even just saw it the other day, and it was a, um, a statement done, I don't know if it was recent or last year, by the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs had penned a paper that said, this needs to stop. We, we disagree with it. I'm not sure what their representation is. They must have representation from nations across the north. I don't know how, if, it's a, if it's a vote thing, um, you know, majority rules or whatever, but you hear a lot of this, and I find it frustrating. They must find it frustrating, too, that this is something that they're doing. They've probably played a role in that. Like Chad said, you know, the Taltan people played a role in managing wolves um, throughout history before um, the European settlers showed up, and it was just something they did when they needed to do it. They knew when, and when they were done with it, they were done with it. So... I, th I think it's valuable to hear that there are Indigenous peoples with different views than kind of this narrative that's quite often put out there in the paper. So does does that does that get to people up there? Do they feel that, like that their voice is not being heard about this as a conservation effort, that it's not just a, you know, what did we see a couple years ago? The big thing it was like when they were talking about um, potential loss of forestry jobs, you know, in northeastern BC, and it was the 500 wolves versus, right. you know, um, 500 jobs kind of thing up there was the big, 
the big thing. So what, 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 what's your been experience with their thoughts? I mean, you know, I think, um, one big take home, and I think to kind of contextual or put a, uh, you know, a label on what, what you're trying to explain too, is that there's, there's really no pan indigenous, um, collective view of the landscape you know like there is no one way that yeah. first nations and and inuit and metis and the variety of indigenous peoples that have you know inhabited different parts of canada and the united states and the globe there's not one way that they interact with the land and you know bc is sure a fairly diverse landscape but it's it's similar you know there's lots of grizzly bears and you know wolves and similar type of you know megafauna but the way in which First Nations have, you know, interacted with those landscapes is very different nation by nation. And so I don't, you know, I think the the media and, and scientists can all often get caught in this trap and just, you know, people in thinking that if they, they hear what, you know, one nation does, that's what First Nations people do. And that, you know, that is just simply not the case. And so you know, we can't, we can't paint these, these broad, broad stroke brushes. And then, you know, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, and I think it's important for, for listeners to understand is that, you know, I, of course, in no way speak for any First Nations. I mean, I am a, you know, I'm a, a, a white man. And, um, you know, all that I can do is sort of share my understanding of, of, you know, what West Moberly and Soto have done and sort of, you know, retell that story from my perspective. But, you know, I think there's there's a lot of good interviews that also, you know, include, you know, Wes Moberly and, and Soto folks and, um, you know, certainly encourage people to listen to those as well. I mean, there was there was actually just an article today in, in National Geographic that was covering some of our work. And, you know, Chief Roland Wilson talks about the I saw that. Yeah, he, he talks about the reduction of wolves, saying that, um, you know, it was one something that they they needed to do to recover these caribou, but also that it wasn't something they were, they were looking to do per se. Like it wasn't, it's not something that they were um, keen to do, but it, it was a, a management action that of course was, you know, going to be successful and, and, and it was. So it's kind of one of these things that you can, you know, you can simultaneously, uh, you know, really uh, respect animals and, you know, hold them in very high regard and, and cultural regard. And you can also, hunt them and, and harvest them and, and, you know, decrease their abundance at times when it, you know, when the landscape and sort of a holistic type management, management approach, which is a more common approach for First Nations people compared to sort of our more Western view of pulling one lever and looking at one species at a time. I mean, First Nations and, you know, Indigenous peoples as a whole have been actively stewarding landscapes for a long time. You can think of cultural burning. I mean, these are, these are big changes on the landscape, which actually do a lot of good for the landscape at times. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, those are, those are some really good points. Um, just, I think, was it last week, Chief Roland Wilson of the Soto First Nation was of, on a podcast. West or West yeah. Moberly, sorry, uh, talking, talking about this. Do you recall the podcast? I just, the name just kind of slips me, but he, it was exactly what you said. You can go listen to him talk yeah. ab uh, about this directly from his perspective. It's, it's called Before the Peace, I think. 
And that's right. That's it. Yeah. Before the peace podcast. It's a phenomenal podcast. I actually, you know, I've, I, I really have a lot of respect for, uh, for Roland and, and a lot of, you know, the, uh, first nations that we work with out of Soto and West, West Moberly. And, um, you know, I, I, I've learned a lot from them, but you know, I listened to that podcast after working with Roland for a number of years and I learned a ton more, um, you know, just about <laughs> the nations and, you know, how Soto came to, you know, join the, their area in the peace and how treaty works. And so anyways, I, you know, I think I really encourage people to listen to that because Roland's a, you know, he's an incredible speaker and, and advocate for his community. And, you know, he's really, he's really fair and knows a lot about, you know, what's going on, you know, politically and ecologically. And it, it's, it's really a good listen. Oh, that's awesome. Well, let's, let's dive a little bit into your work, uh, around all this, uh, conservation effort with the caribou. And, uh, you just had a, um, a paper come out recently kind of talking about some of the results that we've been seeing from this conservation effort. So, so walk us through your work and some of the findings and conclusions and lessons and new things you're learning. Sure. So, I mean, it was science sort of happens in these um, punctuated periods where we're kind of we as scientists are in the background squirreling away on our computers and and, you know, fighting with peer review systems. Then all of a sudden the science just drops out of nowhere. But, you know, of course, we've been working on it for quite a long time. And in this case, it was really a, a two year endeavor just to create the papers and get them through peer review and and there's two papers and they came out at the same time so it was kind of a one of those like boom boom type type moments you know it was all the science dropped in one day and basically um there's two papers and one uh i led and it's it's a co-produced piece of work and so it's it has you know myself and uh dr adam ford and mark hebblewhite so we kind of we square out sort of the university and academic side. And then there's, um, you know, there's six First Nations co-authors as well. So, you know, um, the folks that represent community members and uh, land stewards and um, leaders from West Moberly and Soto First Nations. And then there's also uh, Scott McNay and and his wife, Lynn Giguere from Wildlife Infometrics, which kind of round out the, you know, the independent science um, portion of the work and the folks that are on the ground doing a lot of the collaring and building of the pens and all the logistics. And so we collectively got together and, and created this, uh, this paper that summarizes what happened in the Klinziza right from sort of the, uh, the indigenous knowledge side, which is, you know, the, the sea of caribou that was once there or like bugs on the landscape. So you know, braiding in indigenous knowledge all the way through to pretty fancy mathematical models trying to predict, okay, like how many caribou were there in 2013? And then how did the wolf reductions actually, you know, impact caribou versus maternal penning and trying to weave these different knowledge systems together into, you know, a, a cohesive story, which, you know, people often try to say like, well, what if, um, how could you bring such disparate knowledge systems together or you know what if they don't align or those kind of things and i mean first of all that's okay there you know there are different ways of knowing and sometimes they might not align and and that's why you know you bring them together and and 
provide them to the reader. And, and in this case, they, of course, were actually very complementary. So the one of the hangups with Western science, well, there's probably many, but, you know, one of the things with collecting data is you can only really report what, what you collected, you know? So I, I, you know, I didn't collect any data on caribou in, you know, in the 1940s or prior to, uh, settlement, of course, and neither did anybody else in our sort of academic and Western science vein. We started counting caribou in 1995 when there was about 250 to 300 of them. And that's what all we know. And luckily we did that. That's a lot earlier than we started counting caribou in a lot of other places. But all that we know from the Western science side is there was, you know, a couple hundred and then there was 38. So we know there was, you know, a strong decline, which alone seems like a major issue, but talking with, uh, you know, Wes Moverly and Soto community members, you know, today, so contemporary knowledge holders, and then, um, you know, knowledge that's been passed down to knowledge holders from elders, we started to create a picture that was obviously a lot richer than our kind of short time frame Western science post-1995 piece. And, you know, it included thinking about what uh, the, the flooding of Williston Reservoir, which is the sixth largest dam in the world, and, you know, what that did to caribou, which basically landlocked these caribou in, you know, two directions and cut off a major migration route. And there was observations from community members of caribou, once that valley was flooded, caribou trying to cross their you know, on their historic migration routes and either drowning in the lake or falling through the ice. So, you know, again, we knew that, you know, the landscape had changed well before we started to measure it on our end. And then all the way back to this sort of sea of caribou, which, you know, that's not a number per se, but it doesn't really need to be in a lot of other ways. Like whether it's 500 or 3000, you can, it's very clear that it's not 200, which was spread across, you know, the, the 250 we counted was spread across about 3,000 square kilometers. So you can imagine that doesn't come anywhere near reflecting a sea of caribou or bugs on the landscape. So, you know, we're talking about many, many hundreds of caribou and maybe thousands. So what, what my job was to sort of one, learn how to, um, you know, to, uh, gather and work with those two knowledge systems in a, in a good way, in an ethical way, and then to braid them together into, into a story to kind of, you know, tell what happened. And through doing that, we also expanded upon, you know, what the treaty rights are, which I, you know, shared with you earlier, and then all the way through to what the future is. And, you know, I guess, uh, maybe I should have touched on this earlier, the, the goal of this work is to recover these caribou to a point where they can sustain a hunt. So the essence of this work is to recover hunting for these caribou. And that is actually written right into the agreements with BC and Canada. It is to grow these caribou as expeditiously as possible and to allow hunting. And so, you know, again, that's sort of like hunting and, um, you know, in, in this case, First Nations peoples, and, you know, ecology and science and all the things are all coming together. And obviously hunting has a, a big role to play in, in conservation, but, you know, also in, in why conservations, conservation actions happen. And, 
and in why people care about these lands. I mean, I think there's there's probably a lot of relationship with caribou and and wildlife that extend beyond just the the harvest of them harvest of them. But of course, the the harvest of caribou and the fact that they were created sustenance and were were sustenance in in hard times is obviously a part of that cultural and and ceremonial role for for caribou for for first nations and then you know for us as as settlers as well and in a different way but of course we have our own you know relationship with with wildlife that is different but is also important so you know i think we we tried to expand on on that and 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 tried to take science from this what I kind of think of as a stuffy sort of, um, you know, uh, ivory tower type endeavor where you crunch a bunch of data and p-values and write something that nobody can understand and nobody reads through to something that was more real and involved, you know, people's relationship with caribou and, and you know, a, a pretty inspiring recovery effort and through to, to, to legal things and hunting and tried to wrap it all up. And that was my task over the last two years basically and I you know I think we succeeded in in doing that wow what an amazing story yeah what an amazing experience as as a as a wildlife scientist to have have that um complexity to to a research project so there I I heard an interview with you. I was telling you before the show on CKNW um, just a few days ago. I think it was it was out. Now you were talking about kind of this baseline um, ten years ago of around thirty eight animals. This recovery effort's been going on, and you sort of gave what the current sort of population estimate is for the number of caribou out there and get give us give us a breakdown of what's what's happened to this herd because of this recovery effort we've been talking about so yeah as you say we you know hit a low of 38 in 2013 and just about a month ago the the flights were done for 2022 and this didn't even make it into the paper because of well the way science works is we basically submitted that paper in 2021 and you know of course you can't update it in real time, but the, you know, the hot off the press update is that there was officially 114 caribou in that herd, which is actually a very convenient, clean tripling of the herd. And so that made for very nice uh, headlines, of course. Um, And I mean, (laughs) sort of that alone is pretty unprecedented and, you know, a pretty spectacular increase. I mean, even think about animals around, you know, anywhere, you know, we haven't tripled a, an elk herd or a deer herd or a, a black bear herd per se, or, you know, any other things, sheep herds, but in such a short time, we're talking about like eight or nine years, but I, I think it's even more important set against the direction of other herds that are not receiving any support. I mean, we're talking about herds that are going to zero in, in real time in British Columbia and Alberta, you know, they're declining rapidly. So it's not as if there's a bunch of stability out there and then, and then you add to that and then they triple. We're talking about like declining at 10% a year and then changing that around to increasing at 10 to 14% a year. So talk about like, you know, 24% change type thing. So 
These are major changes of direction for an endangered species that essentially seemed somewhat hopeless in 2013. You know, all that was known was that, you know, there was a bunch of situations of loss. And of course, this is rapidly changing that narrative. And it, I think it teaches us a lot of things. One, it teaches us something about caribou that with the right conditions, caribou are clearly viable on the landscape. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily tell us how we can recreate those conditions in a natural way per se, but it, it's not as if caribou are hopeless. I mean, a, a population tripling in less than a decade is, is not what you think of when you think of an endangered species. So clearly with the right conditions, yeah, caribou totally. are viable. And, and the types of actions that are being done for recovery are, are working in, in, in this case, in this, in this herd, which was, you know, there was some academics about a year or something ago were, were sort of pr producing papers, uh, sort of saying, reanalyzing some work that Dr. Soroya and stuff, uh, had done and, and saying like, look, you're, you're, you're saying wolf recovery is helping these herds, but when in fact we look at it, it, it's not. Um, and, you know, we saw recently uh, public inputs uh, opportunity here in BC. Uh, the province was looking for public thoughts on extending uh, the wolf control programs in several of the uh, caribou recovery zones in the province. There was an opportunity for the public to input. That caused a big kind of controversy because it was like 59% of the people that were surveyed said they didn't think the province should carry on uh, with the wolf call. They they called it uh, scapegoating the wolves for industrial development on the land and, and whatnot. So um, I, this, isn't, this isn't the only um, sort of example in the scientific literature out, but there is a few that's pointing to the fact that it, it is making a difference. Uh, the maternal penning's helping. Um, the wolf recovery effort is helping, or the wolf recovery, the wolf reduction effort. Uh, and then in other parts of the province, they're doing some work on reducing moose density as a way of limiting the growth of, of wolves in there. And it's like, that's helping. Um, that's controversial because they're taking most of the moose harvest out of the, out of the antlerless, you know, seg segment of the moose population. But it, it's, it's interesting to see um you know good credible people like yourself and adam and mark Hebblewhite and stuff you know dr soroya continuing to on this work um and producing results that are saying these are the efforts that are making a difference and it'd be great to see this program expand because like you said you're doing great things for one herd but there were like 40 40 of them in the province that for the most part, there's not a, a whole lot going on, not, not to this level. Well, yeah, I mean, I think let's, let's touch on the efficacy of, of wolf reductions kind of just beyond this herd. And then, and then we should talk about when wolf reductions are appropriate. And those two things are not necessarily always the same, just because it's effective doesn't mean it's the right time or appropriate to do it. And so, I mean, gotcha. I, you know, I think that we show here um, 
that there's there's no question that wolf reductions were a major player in increasing this herd. Uh, basically, when you decompose the influence of wolf reductions and maternal penning, the wolf reduction is a it accounts for about two thirds of the growth, and the maternal penning accounts for about one third. So you know, wolf reduction has a bigger effect than maternal penning, and but together, of course, they have a, a larger combined effect and. Basically, because the Klimziza was declining so fast that wolf reduction alone have only stabilized it, which would have been a win still because we wouldn't have lost the caribou, but wolf reductions with maternal penning allowed the population to grow quite a bit. But a neighboring herd, which we also analyzed in the companion paper called the Quintet, it wasn't declining quite as rapidly and it only received wolf reductions and it is now increasing, you know, at about 8% a year, 6 to 8% a year. So, you know, I think that we show for these two herds unequivocally that wolf reductions, you know, allowed the caribou to increase. We can see increases in adult female survival and in, you know, especially calf recruitment. And province-wide, I mean, I think we, there's a lot of cases where, you know, so wolf reductions being applied quite liberally, actually, in, in British Columbia. There's a number of herds now that have predator reduction programs. And... You know, there's a lot of uh, evidence accumulating now that that is having positive effects for caribou. So, you know, I think when you're talking about, you know, other academics that are, you know, reanalyzing these data, I think that one, that that's sort of how science is supposed to work, that, you know, there should be an open dialogue where, you know, you can reanalyze and critique. But, you know, I do think that there are some concerns where, um, you know, certain groups are always sort of putting out the same kind of uh, results or inference, and it, it seems more like um, they're chasing a result rather than sort of, you know, uh, uh, an objective, you know, assessment of the evidence. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that reanalysis said that, you know, wolf reduction is not, um, not working, it's statistically flawed, maternal penning isn't working. And, you know, the, the work that we did here, we used some pretty sophisticated modeling, the kind of thing that makes, you know, your computer overheats and it takes like a day and a half to run. And, you know, we can, <laughs> we can show very clearly that the maternal penning, there's no question that, you know, these indigenous-led efforts of, you know, maternal penning and wolf reduction are, are working for these caribou and we're seeing it work elsewhere. And... You know, we have some some work on on the way to kind of summarize that at a bigger scale for caribou populations across BC, and so I think that's you know that's that case is somewhat closed on the science side. You know, wolf reductions can help caribou, um, but that is very different than you know one whether we should be doing that and whether we're applying it appropriately and in good faith everywhere, and so. You know, that is where the wolf reduction program is a little bit vulnerable. And the vulnerability is that the, the promise was always that wolf reductions are a short-term stopgap measure. And, you know, that was the case in Klinziza, you know, as, as we kind of alluded to. And we haven't talked about the habitat piece, but, you know, I'll say quickly that the Klinziza, one of the big wins was that uh, an agreement with BC and Canada secured 8,000 square kilometers of caribou habitat. So 
an area that is about 50% larger than Banff National Park. Like our flagship national park in Canada, this caribou protected zone is 50% larger. And that agreement was signed in 2020. So that's sort of in line with that pro promise that these caribou were going to zero. We need to do something in the interim while we figure out the habitat piece. And it, you know, big agreements like that don't happen overnight. And the habitat restoration will definitely not happen overnight. It'll take a long time. It could be 20 plus years before, you know, that landscape is recovered. But at least that narrative of, you know, we need to do what we can in the interim while we get the habitat online, the Klinziza and, you know, through West Moverly and Soto's hustle on that file has, you know, basically come through with as promised. But that is not true for a lot of other herds in BC and and Alberta. So, you know, that is where a lot of the critique is actually legitimate in that, you know, there's sort of um, a, a feeling that the wolf reduction is being used as a more of a long-term solution in place of, you know, meaningful habitat protection and trying to figure out how we're going to balance, um, you know, economic and industrial needs in our province, because obviously people need jobs and we build houses and all of us consume resources. So there's no problem there. But I, I think it, it'd be hard to argue that we're in a place that's that's working very well on the landscape. I mean, we're seeing pretty extensive industrialization of the landscape to the point that, you know, we can't sustain caribou. You know, we're seeing issues with moose and, you know, we have roads everywhere and it's sort of not working very well and it'd be hard to argue that. And so, you know, I think that that is where the wolf reduction program is vulnerable in that without meaningful yeah. commitments to habitat, then it, it, it will at some point and maybe sometime very soon become not very appropriate to continue, you know, calling those wolves if there's not commitments to habitat made. Yeah, and there's been some very credible work came out a uh, paper about a year ago, uh, looking at that habitat piece. I think um, um, Dr. Hebblewaite was uh, involved in it. Uh, there was basically kind of saying, you know, since all this caribou recovery effort that's been happening in the province, BC still logging more areas in and around caribou habitat than what's being restored from it from and so so that was a major sort of empirical blow to this argument that you're just saying which is what a lot of people that are opposed to the wolf management work is is like you're not actually doing the habitat piece you keep talking about short term that was a very good quantitative paper that said yep no that's that's actually what's happening and even just as recently as last week there's you know a, a paper came out that showed uh more logging taking place um where cut blocks are bumping into the critical caribou habitat zone in fact um eddie patrician uh from wildsite here in in uh the east kootenays uh helped kind of break that story with with his work, um, sort of finding areas where they're still up there logging. And he sort of exposed the fact that even under um, sort of the provisions for logging in and around caribou habitat, they're still allowed to overlap cut blocks into the protected caribou old growth zones as long as it doesn't equate to like 
more than five five hectares or you know or something like that so in his words he's like we're still nibbling away at protected caribou habitat with logging old growth so um i totally get it at it, it the wolf management program it it's helping caribou but it's vulnerable because this other stuff is still happening and one of my fears is with everything that's going on with the war in ukraine and cutting off oil supplies out of russia everybody in the world is up in the game in their oil productions and pulling out of reserves and northern alberta and northern british columbia have oil and gas reserves which could lead to another gold rush so to speak that created a lot of that disturbance up there so that's a really unknown piece that could hit us in the next few months or a year or whatever so no question yeah i mean there's there's lots of uncertainty wow. there and you know i think i think the the nuance is so important here and i mean and I think you've captured it well. Of course, you know we know that the wolf reductions work, and that is a separate issue. You know of of whether we are using them appropriately. And I think that's kind of where uh, people uh, simplify the issue and kind of get onto this like no wolves should die or like all wolves should die type dichotomy. And that's <laughs> yeah, you know I, I yeah I think in both cases you'd have a hard time justifying that either end for a variety of reasons. Like it will be very difficult to keep caribou in Southern British Columbia without predator reductions. That, you know, that is un unfortunately a fact in the near term. Um, and it could be that we as people make a decision that the reduction of wolves is less tenable to us than, you know, um, keeping caribou around and we choose not to have caribou like we're kind of at that point of these social decisions because you know it's sort of a one or the other at, at at some point but you know i think trying to dig into the nuances is really important and i think that's where scientists have you know a, a duty to try to communicate that nuance and not try to trivialize these into like you know all wolf reductions are bad or be major supporters of them and say like oh we need to call wolves and any wolf control you know I'll, I'll die on that hill i mean i think i you know i think we try to communicate here that they can be used to you know buy caribou time especially in cases where habitat is being you know meaningfully committed but it's you know there's cases where it's not starting to shape up not as good for caribou and like you say there are strong evidence there is strong evidence that habitat is getting worse for caribou in a lot of places and so these are herds that are declining. Their habitat is getting worse. And we are spending money trying to recover them while simultaneously logging and, you know, extracting resources from their habitat. And I'd say it, that is not a great um, situation, as you could imagine. Um, and it, it might not be that all hope is lost. I mean, there is a lot of commitments to resource extraction that happens, you know, way back and you know those commitments maybe have to be honored and potentially there's something brewing in the back end where you know this is maybe the last of the logging in some of those places and those um those cut blocks were committed way back before you know we planned to save caribou but that's that's maybe the the optimist in me hoping that we're we're getting the last of it out but of course the trend is not looking good 
um, for a lot of these herds. Yeah, and I mean, layered on top of that too, up in the northeast are the coal mines. A um, little different story than logging, which has the potential for, you know, a forest to regrow uh, in a period of time, long time before it gets to, to old growth. But, you know, there is a tremendous upsurge in the coal mining development in the northeast, which kind of like tanked a number of years ago. But in that quintet, bull moose, wolverine region, uh, you know, around the Tumblr area is uh, like it's it's full steam ahead. Um, coal prices are up, demand for, you know, steel and those products. And there are new mines, coal mines on the table up there that are right smack on top of winter range for some of these endangered herds and uh you know that's that's still happening you know in amongst this this conversation and this recovery effort and you know just i, I want to move on to a, a an exciting topic here as well because it's april 15th when this episode's out turkey hunting but you know this conversation that kind of keeps floating around about no wool should die um you know, in order to save another species, you know, that, that, that conversation to me, that is not a conversation for society to make, to make that choice of wolves, knowing what's going to happen to caribou, like making that trade off because we don't want to cull wolves. To me, there is no choice because we have a legal obligation under the treaty and under the Canadian constitution, those caribou have to be on that landscape because indigenous rights to hunt them and live off of them and have a culture that's built around that is, is not negotiable. It, it is like, this is the, this is the NASA saying like there, there, there is no option is not a failure like or failure is not an option sorry that's why i'm not an astronaut <laughs> um a rocket scientist can't even get the phrase right um but yeah failure is not an option and and uh and and i look at it in this case it's just like i think we've got to take that discussion off the table and look at it from the perspective of the people that caribou have to be there eight generations from now and we have to do whatever it takes. Well, yeah, I think that's great. And I think, you know, to kind of yeah. summarize what what we talked about here, I think there's reasons to now know that we can recover caribou. Like, it, we have that ability. I mean, tripling them in less than a decade and having the right people at the table, you know, trying to, you know, decolonize the way that we do conservation and, and um, you know, involving Indigenous mm. knowledge and, and all the differences that come with that, it might not be like we have historically done it and things might be different and they will be different and they'll probably be different in a good way in a lot of uh, ways. And, you know, we often don't like change, but that's okay. A lot of good things happen with change. And, you know, I think that we are, we're well poised to actually recover caribou um, if and when we make that decision to, you know, get after it. And I think that the work that we've, you know, published this week is a, you know, a pretty compelling example that that, that is possible all the way through from 
almost extirpation through to you know tripling and averting that extirpation and of course that really meaningful habitat protection and then probably in 10 years we'll write the habitat restoration paper like what can we do on the landscape with excavators and planting trees and what does a sustainable landscape look like for caribou and that's that's the next phase of our work like how do we create a landscape that will work for these caribou and you can imagine that's a difficult question but it's a pretty exciting thing that we're diving into head first so you know i think i think we're on a good track here to create yeah because it, it go ahead the interesting analogy there is is like it, the bathtub situation and you're you're playing with like the water into the tub right like there's a carrying capacity out there on an unrestored landscape and you can't get too good at growing the caribou and turning them loose because if the carrying capacity of the land isn't there because it's it's been degraded then you got to put the brakes on on that um so so i i uh i really hear what you're saying yeah. is is uh that that restoration piece really has to um probably be somewhere in the order of magnitude of like a decade ahead of of getting itself up to up to full speed and that's that time is probably now yeah exactly and you know i think there's ways that we're looking at it shortcutting the time required i mean the one thing that's not super well understood is like do we have to get that whole place back to an 80 year old forest which that would be very difficult like i i mean i'll be dead basically you know so it's like well that won't be a very that's not <laughs> that's not a research project i that deeply want to invest in right now but um of course i would uh but I think that that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I think we can do things that will recover um, the landscape in a functional way, not necessarily ecologically, but we can restore some of the processes, you know, like um, uh, ripping up the linear features, like ripping up uh, roads that wolves are running down and more effectively hunting caribou on, especially roads that go up into elevation and, you know, uh, a wolf pack's running a moose down the road and they don't get the moose and they hang a right and they go up and there's a caribou. And caribou are such lovely creatures that aren't that wolf savvy, you know? And that's kind of the hang up here because they didn't evolve with that density of wolves. And so, you know, I think restoring those linear features and, you know, mounding them and doing actually applied mechanical treatments, we can get bang for buck right away. We'd have to restore a pile of them, but I think we can do that and then start letting the landscape regrow. So yeah, as you say, I think there's gonna be a lot of learning and, and there'll probably be some stumbles along the way because I mean, we're breaking new ground here. Uh, a recovered landscape for caribou does not exist. There are landscapes that are kind of working for caribou that are not damaged right now. And there's a bunch of damaged landscapes that are not working for caribou, but we have not ever turned one around. Not basically we haven't tried also, you know, we've kind of done little piddly things, but we've never had a landscape level restoration effort for caribou. And, and this is probably going to be one of the first ones. And so, you know, I think, I think it's exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that will be, that'll be exciting to get that piece happening at, at a full scale. Cause um, one, it'll sort of be, people will be putting, you know, the money where their mouth is, uh, and, and maybe it'll take a little bit of the, of the, um, the limelight off the controversial piece of, of predator management and, and, uh, may, maybe it'll, 
uh, it'll be the piece that it'll bring bring more folks together a little bit yep. um as opposed to what we're seeing right now is the predator management pieces is, is dividing people which is is not good for conservation no um so let's switch gears so today is april 15th We've, we're recording this a little earlier but it's coming out uh we're all not here we are <laughs> out in the woods uh somewhere in the turkey woods uh op opening day are you going to get out opening day yeah i mean it's it's the most humbling time of year for me it's actually it's therapeutic it keeps me grounded cool so back in episode one uh as i mentioned at the start of the show you and i had gone out on on a turkey hunt uh i think it was about a month or so before we recorded the episode uh got a turkey uh, had a really cool experience of a golden eagle smashing down through the canopy, all hell broke loose into like down into the dark, deep forest. This eagle comes down there and it was chasing this Tom Turkey, almost run him down and caught us right, right in front of him. And, and then a little while later you, you got one and that was a really cool experience. And then the last couple of years, um, you, cause of COVID you've been doing your thing and some mornings or we've been texting each other and how's it going? Yeah. I, you know, I have a lot of heard a gobble, but he, <laughs> so, so how, how has the solo turkey hunting been going the last couple of years? You know, I, I, I learned a lot when we went out. I mean, it's kind of a, a good plug to, um, you know, taking somebody novice out. I'm, I'm not, I don't think of myself as a particularly novice hunter. I mean, I've hunted all across BC and shot a stone sheep and a bighorn and all the things, but like turkeys was a new game. Like I felt like a kid, like I had absolutely, I was completely <laughs> ill-equipped. I, um, I still do. Yeah. Like my, you know, my noisy gators and all of my mountain hunting equipment was also not well suited for turkey hunting. And <laughs> You know, I, I learned a lot when, when we went out about how to hunt turkeys and I learned a lot from you and then just, you know, our, our relationship, I've, you know, asked you a lot of questions. Then, of course, I'm just a curious person that, you know, that's partly why I do what I do. I'm always wondering what animals do and why they do what they do. And so I'm always trying to learn myself and I've researched a lot about turkeys. Basically, after every failure, you know, I'd go out and there'd be a Tom with all these hens and I'd be like, well, what's going on there? And I'd learn like, okay, how does the roosting behavior work? Why is he breeding every day? And then, you know, learning that a hen goes and lays an egg every day. And anyways, so I've, it's been kind of a, a journey kind of at the intersection of, of hunting and ecology, which is the majority of my life really. Um, and I have harvested two turkeys. Um, I have had many more, uh, failures or you know I like to think of them as lessons and you know I, I've learned a, a <laughs> yeah I've learned a ton about turkeys and I think they are they're fascinating animals and I've just had some both spectacular experiences and just some like painfully humbling ones where like you're you, you do all the things right like it, it's just such a process right like you at least for me, when I was living in Fernie, I had to get up at like four in the morning and like make my breakfast the night before and make coffee and then drive into, you know, a place that had turkeys. And then, and it's on like a Tuesday or something where I'm supposed to be working. 
and then get walk <laughs> into somewhere in the dark, you know, and then these turkeys are gobbling and I get set up below a tree and this Tom is like 80 yards away gobbling and I get my decoy set up and everything's good and I like stay quiet because I've been learning not to overcall them and I'm trying to do all the things and then day breaks and this thing flies down and like I swear like he looks over does like a 90 and then just takes off like the road runner across his clear cut and it's like okay like that's what my last 12 hours have been building towards and now like I, I should just go home you know <laughs> So lots of things like that too, but I, you know, I've really enjoyed it. it. It's a positive and really um, valuable part of my spring, which was partly, you know, um, uh, thanks to you introducing me to it. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it is, I, I agree with what you said. Like it's, they're fascinating animals because they are very, very complex their social hierarchy is complex. Their um, their breeding behavior is incredibly complex. Those two things probably account for like, you know, a, a good proportion of these interactions with us. And when you don't understand that layer on top of it, they can see color. They got incredible eyesight. Mm -hmm. You can make a hand call and a hundred yards away, a gobbler hears it, he answers, and he knows within a one meter circle of where that sound came from at a hundred yards away. So he's got these eagle eyes and he's coming in there with his head stretched out and he knows exactly, and he's looking right for where you're sitting. And um, there, yeah, there's just all these things about him that are just amazing. And when you get all of that figured out, and you use it to your advantage in the right situation, it, it totally works against them and in your favor and it just unfolds beautifully. But I don't know how you're finding it. I kind of find it's like a 10 to one ratio yeah. where they, or they, they mess you up yeah. nine times before you, before you get one. And, uh, it's, it, it is humbling. Um, and you do get some good, good lessons. One of the things I've been finding, and I don't think you and I have talked about this. Tell me what your experience is. I'm a little apprehensive of using a male decoy in my set now. So I've taken a Jake decoy and I've, I've, um, like pimped him out and he's got a real turkey tail and he's got real wings, a little bit of a paint job as well. And, uh, looks pretty, pretty real. The next closest thing to us, to a stuffed turkey. And, but, but, and then I have a hand, so I'm doing like the, you know, like the two and then the doing the hand calling, the gobbler comes in he goes, there's a hand. Oh, there's another Tom. So I'm going to, you know, puff out and come in and, try to dominate this other Tom and take, take this hen away. And who's this, you know, I'm the top ranking bird here and who is this person and, and stuff. And, and that's, the, that's the theory. I have had that work, but I'm having more experiences now where when the Toms see that there's another Tom there, that actually is a deterrent to come closer. So I'm, rethinking the two decoys scenario for this this year 
have have you have you seen that have you maybe that's why it was running across the clear cut because it saw your tom turkey i mean i i think it's almost like a i always think like a scientist like i'm not really that much of like an independent sample because i feel like you and i have talked about this and i always think when i think of turkey hunting and like getting advice i always ask you for it and i think you maybe told me something like that before and then when we talked about that, I was like, oh, good. I'm never using mm. this this tom. So I only use the hen, partly because I think we've talked about it, is my guess. So I am, okay. my sample size, my sample is okay, sort of. Okay, maybe I don't remember, but yeah. I'm biased by you. So I, I mostly use a hen. And, you know, I've, I've had the one experience where, like, I put out the hen and they're in the tree and I gobbled them, or I, you know, hen called them down, and they're gobbling, and these two toms came in and all puffed up, and it looked like you see on TV, and it was, like, absolutely magical, and I got one of the toms. And then the rest is just, like, tragic, you know? Like, it's just the worst <laughs> case of all the things that could go wrong. I mean, the two major things I learned about turkey hunting are it's not very hard to get a tom to gobble. Like, you can get a tom to gobble. That's like, that's not difficult. And you can see a turkey. Like, it's not hard to get within 100 yards of a turkey. But those two things are like astronomically different than getting within 40 yards of a turkey. Despite it seeming like by the time you get those two done, you're pretty well done, you know? And it's not like you lay down with your 270 and like shoot this thing, you know? It's you got to get pretty close and <laughs> and getting that getting within 30 40 yards like that is just night and day i felt like when i was hunting them there was always turkeys around me like i was just there was gobbles and it felt like there was turkeys everywhere but like shooting one was a very different game yeah totally and like i don't know if you've been trying to do the like sneak up on them thing but i found that that doesn't that doesn't generally doesn't, doesn't work out hurt. all that well they got these these amazing amazing eyes and so one of the things you know that i've learned about them is because their eyes are on like the sides of their head um but they're always their head is always moving like this a little bit they'll peck 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 and then they're up and they're just they're always moving a little bit and that actually creates almost a 360 degree view for them the side eyes with a little bit of motion of the head anything within that 360 they see something uh, a little tiny bit of movement and it's wham eyes in the back of the head type type scenario so if for the most part if i can't get one to come to me i very rarely try to go after it unless it's like you know, it's gone from 40 yards to like 200 yards, then I might move, move in the direction and try and cut it off or get it to come closer or whatever. But, uh, spot and stalk doesn't work all that well with the turkeys. <laughs> no, and that was the only tool I had in my toolkit when I started doing this. That was the only way I knew how to hunt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like if you if you duck hunt and you learn to just like sit on your butt, that's kind of a a, a discipline that'll kind of help you with turkey hunting is just have the discipline to just stay stuck on your butt because sometimes it can take like an hour or more before it's like, yeah, he's there. 
Um, sounds like he's moving away, but you know, he may, he may come back. There's a really, uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain down in the United States. He's a Turkey researcher out of the university of Georgia and they, they do some really cool stuff. They put actually put like GPS trackers on hunters and on turkeys. And then they see how they interact like during the hunting season. And there was this really cool one where, where the hunter came in, sat down, called, went over here, came back and left. And meanwhile, this turkey came out of the roost and was kind of like working his way around on the landscape. And it literally heard where the guy was gobbling from. And three hours later, it came to the exact spot where he'd been sitting, but he just didn't have the patience to sit there long enough. The turkey was going to come there. It knew there was a hen calling over there, but it was just taking its sweet time. And to have the discipline to sit there for two, three, four hours, like, like still hunting whitetails can pay off. Yeah. I, that's just, that's the challenge, one, right? Like, I just don't know if I could do that. Like I, it's one of those things where like <laughs> somebody could tell you that and you know that it could work, but like putting it into practice, like at the 1.5 hour mark of sitting out on some pine flat, it's like, you know, would I rather just go have a coffee? Like, do I really need a turkey? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that. Well, especially here in April, it was snowing two days ago. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, that, that, that gets me the eebie-jeebies because it's, it's cold. It cold. And yeah, it's all great to say you're going to sit in a spot for the whole morning and wait for the turkeys to move around and come your way but it's like a tree stand in december after an hour and a half it's like you you're you're hypothermic and it's like you're you have you're no freezing until it, <laughs> freezing till about 10 o'clock in the morning yeah. and then you're hiking back to the truck in your t-shirt yes yeah that's the so, dichotomy it, but you do you do get some nice nice days <laughs> um so what what is a what is a really cool thing that you've learned that that you think you kind of got dialed in on i mean I, I think the biggest trick that i learned was that i was calling too much to call less like it's just so gratifying mm. i think it's like maybe it's part of my generation of like you know needing the instant gratification and our our neediness but like i always wanted to know where that turkey was you know so like i I'd be sitting there in the dark and I'm kind of bored and I don't know, maybe I can't get Wi-Fi, so I'm not on Facebook or something and I need to do something and I want to know where that turkey is while I'm sitting there in the dark. And so I'd call to them and be like, oh, are you still in this tree? Which they of course are. Like I should know better that, you know, they don't fly down until it gets light and I should know that. <laughs> but because I'm, you know, I live in this space between being a scientist that's supposed to like think rationally and I'm also a human being that just does weird things when I'm, you know, not being a scientist. And so I would just call to them because I'd want to know if he's still there and I'd want to know if he's going to come and get them all excited. And then he, the animals would almost invariably go the other way, like every time. And the, when I finally got my first turkey on my own was after I would fail every morning. I'd go home and I'd try to get home by like nine so I could start my actual job. I'd work an hour later and 
then, you know, in the evenings, I would watch turkey hunting videos and like tips relentlessly to be like, okay, what happened to what I did? Why did that not work? And I started to call less. And when I finally got the tom, I basically sat there and I knew where they were in the roost and I put up my decoy and I let them gobble away. So I knew where they were, but I wasn't stimulating the gobbling and it got light and I called once and, you know, then I heard them hit the ground and they ran to the decoy and it was, you know, it was textbook. But then of course I thought I was good at turkey hunting. And then last year I did similar things and, you know, it didn't work as well. And I finally got a turkey, but I was scratching for one. So, you know, you also learn that there is no recipe. Yeah. I mean, that is, that, that is a, that is a very good strategy because it seems more often than not, uh, in my experience, the gobbler's in a tree and there are hens also roosted there. So if you're calling in the dark, the hens know there's a hen there <laughs> that somehow showed up in the middle of the night or early in the morning and it's like, what the hell? And they they fly down out of the tree and they're I think they're a little bit more brave. They they fly down before the the tom in in my experience. And they start feeding around or whatever, but then they want to put distance between them and this other hen. And so when he finally flies down, he knows there's a hen over there, but he sees the live ones he's been with all night and they just slowly lead him off. So you have the classic, he's right there, he's 80 yards away, he flies down out of the trees, gobbling his head off, but then as he gobbles, it just gets farther yeah. and farther and farther away, and that's most likely he's with hens, and they're leading him away from you, because they're like, you bitch. That that makes good if sense. If you're hand calling a lot. I was trying to figure out like why they would go the other way. Cause like, you know, I think I was trying to figure out why they wouldn't just check it out, but that makes sense. If there's actually like the hen sort of leading them away, I think that that makes it clearer. One thing I've always wondered, and I think this is a pretty naive question, but like why besides the non-sporting part that it wouldn't be very much fun, why can't you shoot them out of the roost? Like that one that ran away from me, I was looking at him up in the light. Like he was standing in the tree and I was like, should I just walk over there and shoot him? But I was like, no, it'd be fun to call him in. And of course he hit the ground and ran away from me. But why can't you just shoot them in the roost? So for me personally, there, there's, there's two components to that. Uh, the, the the first one is it's like yeah there there's the sporting thing yeah. of it right like some people will only like flush a rough grouse and and wing shoot or or they won't like swat a duck sitting on the water it's it has to be uh, in the air so so that there's kind of there's that part of it the sporting ethical kind of fair chase chaseness of it but for me the reality is when they're up in that roost tree and they're gobbling, the light situation is not that good. Yeah. That that is pretty that is pretty iffy, regardless of what the the regulations and the time and sunrise and you know all the legalities of it. It's freaking dark in the forest, and you might be able to pick it out, but in the spring of the year, you have an obligation. To make sure that that thing has a beard right and so you get a dark bird 
and not like borderline daylight up in a dark tree with dark branches. And it's like, are you 100% it's gobbling its head off? But are you 100% sure that that thing's got a beard? Right. And to me, that's that that is one of the biggest factors because like i take any legal bearded turkey i'm not a i'm not a like oh that's a that's a jake with just a little one inch beard i'm looking for a big nine or ten inch beard i'm just like man that's a good tasting turkey and he's got a beard so if i'm looking at this thing up in the tree i've already walked down it's going like holy shit, what's right below me when when can I fly out of this tree? And it's only got like a little stubby beard sticking out of its chest. I don't. I'm probably not going to see that. But, and yes, it's gobbling, and there's a pretty good chance it's a tom. But what happens if it's a tom that's lost its beard, like in a fight or whatever? It's it's not legal if it doesn't have a beard. Right. No, I think that that makes good so. There's sense. that part of it. And then the other part of it for me is um, shooting a shotgun up through a tree, the branches, usually bigger, heavy branches and stuff. You're going to deflect uh, a lot of those pellets and then you run the risk of getting a really poor hit on the bird and just simply wounding it. And when they're in a roost tree and they know there's something on the ground, uh, when they come out of it, a lot of times they'll come out of it and they'll, they'll like, they're gone. Like they'll, they'll, they're at a point in the tree or on a vantage point on the train where it's like, I've seen Curtis and I have seen them where they're like a kilometer across the draw. <laughs> like there's like, like a Canada goose, they're gone. So you blast a bird, you don't kill it cause you've hit all these branches and then this wounded bird, like that's it. You've, you've wounded it and it's, and it's coasted away. So those are my reasons why I would never take one out of a tree. Yeah, I think I think that makes good sense. I mean, I there was it was kind of like an academic exercise in my brain of like, well, why don't we do this? Like, I there was something about it was pretty light when I was I saw this. Tommy was right on the edge of a clear cut, so there was a little bit of extra light because it wasn't actually in the canopy per se, and he was kind of like out on the limb. So I was thinking like, I I feel like I could go get mm -hmm, him, but mm -hmm. There was something, it just didn't feel right. And I think it was the sporting aspect. And then it was the the shot, right? Like like you say, up and under could not be a clean kill. And it also would do a lot more damage to the meat than, you know, if he gets on the ground and you can get a nice, you know, upper neck and head shot. So that was sort of why I chose not to do yeah. it. But it I think that was a pretty rare situation that you could also see him in the light mm -hmm. like that. And but it, yeah, it was just, it was kind of a curiosity of like, why is this not a thing? But I think there's abundant reasons why we do not do that. Yeah. I mean, it's like everything in hunting, right? Like it's situational and, um, you know, the podcasts that Curtis and I have done with all the guys from, from the wild TV series, um, John and Kevin and, and uh, Jeff and stuff like that. They they have this really cool perspective where they look at hunting from a food outcome. I'm going on this hunt, and I have an outcome for food, and 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 that justifies like what and when and where they take an animal. Uh, so the last episode uh, 
we did, we were talking a little bit about that with John Snyder um, on the spring bear hunting and talking a little bit about food outcomes. And he, he gave an example of like last year uh, during the deer season, one of the food outcomes that he wanted was this um, to, to do like a complete hind quarter, you know, of, of, a, of a deer like on an op open fire or something like that. But he didn't want like it from a full grown deer. So his food outcome was he wanted to cook and prepare this hind quarter a certain way. But the size that he wanted meant that he was going to be looking for uh, of this year's fawn, right. which he ended up taking completely legal. And so the, that having that mindset of like, what's your food outcome, uh, bringing this into this discussion about turkey hunting, if your food outcome is such and such with a turkey, and here's this opportunity with good ethical light, a clear shooting alley, you positively identified a bird, it's sitting on a limb, you're out there on a hunt because you want this outcome, not the experience of gobbling and getting away. You want the experience of this meal you're going to prepare at Christmas time or with your family. I'm of the mindset, if it's a good, clean, ethical shot and it's a bearded turkey, go for it. I think that makes sense. So. Interesting. What would you do, Curtis? Yeah. I uh, I don't think I'd ever shoot one out of the tree just for reasons discussed and other reasons. Just like I won't shoot a duck on the water. I find with the ducks, if you shoot them on the water, the angle of the pellets, for whatever reason, it just seems like they beat them off. And you can't, I've never had a good shot on a duck that's on the water usually I just shoot right over top of them i'm much more accurate if i'm shooting them out of the air so yeah that but yeah i think i i yeah i wouldn't stick to the wouldn't stick it, to shooting them out of the tree that's for sure it is a good point that you make clayton that from a tree you're generally going to be like shooting up or at a at a steeper angle um so that opportunity for just that clean neck and head outstretched bird at 25, 30 yards that stopped and kind of like looking at your decoy and kind of going like, okay, why isn't it moving? And you're like, boom, yeah. it's like, that's the, mm -hmm. you know, that is the most ethical shot. There's absolutely no doubt on, on a wild turkey. So, um, just, but just talking about that situation rules or other people's yeah. food outcomes just talking about that situation makes me excited thinking about that you know when people are listening to this we could all be gobbling in turkeys or you know having another lesson day which i will probably be having but still enjoying it and and learning a lot i mean i think I, i'm excited for the turkey season and to I'll be texting you my um, my repeating failures and and lessons. And <laughs> we can you're like my turkey therapist. We oh, we work through my problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm uh, I, I just I just keep all mine compartmentalized because <laughs> the f opening morning last year I freaking missed one. Oh. Goblin. Uh, I got in there, sitting there. I did a couple of calls. He was new in there. He he knew I was there. Came out, um, was 
coming straight towards me and I had done a little bit of a thing going, you know, I might be better off to sit over there than this spot because I thought he might come along the bench and straight to me. But knowing turkeys, he's probably going to take the high ground and take the ridge above me. And I might be better off to be on the little opening where the, where the toe of the ridge hits the flat. And that's exactly what he did. So he ended up behind me. And he was trying to come in from behind me. And I'm trying to get up and turn around and through the tree and bushes. And he's coming in behind. And he's kind of like, okay, this is a weird situation. And I ended up missing him when he walked through a little opening between a couple of bushes. And so it happens. It happens. We all, we all make... We all make mistakes, but the, the one that I did get last year, and this was another reason that kind of solidified not using the, the Jake decoy. I've had really good luck when they're dominant toms that see that a young tom that they don't recognize is with a hen. They come right in. They come right in within range. They're very aggressive. They are going to drive this other bird off. That's worked well for me. Last year, I ended up in this scenario where there were three toms in a tree, two subordinates, and one big long beard. And the two subordinates were in a tree by themselves, and the big long beard was in his own tree. They were gobbling like crazy when I did a couple of little quiet hen calls. The big tom came out of the roost first and sailed right on by me, like out onto the, uh, an opening behind me. And then he was strutting out there, gobbling away, telling the hen to come out and take a look at how magnificent he is. These other two less dominant birds started working their way. They flew out and they started working their way down through the forest. And they were like, oh, there's the hen. And they're puffed right out and they're coming in. And I'm like, okay, this is perfect. They got partway down not within shooting range and they looked down and they saw my puffed out male turkey tom turkey with the hen and they went oh fuck it's him (laughs) the big guy let's not get any closer and so they got all apprehensive and they turned around and started going back up the hill and i'm like god damn this backfired so but then the big Tom finally, the hand didn't come out to meet him. So he come wandering into the forest and looking for her and I got him. Perfect. But uh, that that's one of the reasons where I'm like, yeah, mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. And my decoy ends up being a deterrent. So, But you the, got a the, bigger the, Tom. The Tom. I did actually. It worked mm-hmm. out. But... It didn't work out because it was planned and I, I'm happy with that because I got the food, uh, a lot of it. It's the biggest one I've ever got. I think um, it was like 29 pounds, huge for Miriam's turkey. But I don't want to bank on on that as a strategy that was didn't kind of where I went. Why did that work? Totally. <laughs> so, uh have you been practicing your calling? Not as much as I should be. I mean, I was just thinking about that just now. I was like, gee, should I go put my diaphragm in and squawk around the house and try to figure out if I can do this again? Or, yeah, I, 
I really mostly use the um, the slate call because I'm not that skilled with the diaphragm, but I would like to do it. But I'm getting more into this stage of life where time is a premium these days, and I just don't have as much time to chase these recreational things I used to. And so teaching myself the turkey instrument hasn't been high on my priority list lately, but it should be. Maybe in the next few days I'll get my diaphragm going. Mm-hmm. You can uh, you can always do it while you're driving. Yes. Then there's nobody to drive you crazy. You just do it in the truck practice. Maybe that's what I'll do. But it'll be good to get it out because if it's all the latex, things are all stuck together. Yes. You don't want to find out at an inappropriate time no. <laughs> in the turkey woods. That'd be sad. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm excited. It's next week. Me too. But... Mm-hmm. Clayton, really appreciate coming back on the show, um, filling us in on your work, which is always super fascinating. Um, you just got some amazing projects. You're such a great communicator, such a great storyteller, such a great way of boiling down um, the complexities of how you unfold the science on your computer with your models and stuff and just talk normally to people about it uh you're amazing at doing that and uh, i love having these conversations and learning about about your research mm-hmm. thanks mark yeah, yeah and, and thanks curtis for the opportunity to chat here i mean it's always a, a pleasure to chat with you guys on here and um yeah to provide an outlet to share the science in a in a new way and to chat with hunters and you know reinforce the the important role that hunting has in conservation as well and um yeah yeah thanks again and i hope that we're all successful turkey hunting yeah yeah me me too so here i'll leave you with a turkey question we'll have to pick this conversation up uh somewhere along the lines they got a bad rap in southern british columbia because they are a non-native species they're a native bird to the North American continent. They evolved here and all of their subspecies, but they were introduced into outside their historic range, the Miriam's wild turkey across the line in the United States. They immigrated into BC and Southern Alberta. They're treated, classified as a non-native here in BC. And so they don't have an overly great reputation as far as wanting to do too much with them know very much about them, manage them, have tags, all that sort of stuff here in BC. So like to have a conversation with you from the perspective of a wildlife scientist and a hunter is we're raving about this introduced species um, that we like on the landscape. We have an amazing time hunting it. They're amazing to eat. They produce a lot of food, but then in our conservation work, we tell people about the dangers of introduced species and yada yada. So uh, I think that'll be an interesting conversation. Maybe we maybe we can text it in the dark while we're waiting for the toms to come out. I like it. Let's let's unpack it or around a campfire one day. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll call it the philosophy of wild turkeys. <laughs> I love it, Curtis. Take it away. Cool. So 
head on down to Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook and maybe they'll get you rigged up with a new turkey rig. Maybe now you're not thinking about chicken tractors, you're thinking about turkey hunting. Or you got to get your summers put back on or whatever you need. Go uh, go check the folks down at Alpine Toyota out. Like I said, big supporters of us, big supporters of Ducks Unlimited Canada. Be cool if we had a uh, Canadian National Wild Turkey Federation. Well, a local chapter, I know it used to, but uh, those turkey banquets were always fun to go to. But, yeah, especially because uh, we would win firearms. I think. Yeah, totally. But uh, yeah. Again, thanks to the folks down at Alpine Toyota for their continuing support of what we do. You bet. Thank you, Alpine. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks again, Clayton. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.